This is Series 3 of Brave New Girl Podcast, and I'm Lou Hamilton, author and illustrator of Brave New Girl, How to Be Fearless, and I welcome you to the stories of real-life Brave New Girls, who are creatives, founders, campaigners, health practitioners, and thought leaders who are making a positive impact in the world. This week's guest is Dr. Catherine Kelly, an academic, a Brighton-based wellbeing practitioner, member of the wild swimming group Salty Seabirds, and author of Blue Spaces, How and Why Water Can Make You Feel Better, something she discovered when her mother died and she was drawn to the rural Irish coastline to heal. Welcome, Catherine, to Brave New Girl Podcast. Hi, Catherine, how are you? I'm good today. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to see you. And I'm very excited to talk about all things water. I wonder during this time in pandemic when we were sort of in lockdown and everything was restricted, but kind of after the first lockdown, we were actually allowed out. We were given sort of leave to walk outside our front doors and people just gravitated to nature and and that was kind of lifting moment in, in the day. And I wonder with your experience with the sea and with swimming with other people and you know how how were people coping during this last sort of what's a year and a half now isn't it I know it's hard to believe I think you're 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 quite right when we were all forced into our homes I think we suddenly really reevaluated our relationship with nature and for someone like me that was really lovely to witness and see and you know we I think a lot of us felt an almost desperate need to connect to the ground or the sea, you know, walking in a park, walking by a river, walking by the sea, if you live near it, if you were within the kind of restriction zone, um, that you could do that. And I think, you know, especially in the last year and a half, there's been a huge sense of claustrophobia. If we cast our minds back when we were coming out of it now, but remember back six, eight months ago when there was very little that we could do. And people felt locked into their homes. They felt locked into their minds, their bodies probably as well. And, you know, this sense of existential claustrophobia as well. This notion of not being able to be free. And I think um, getting out for me in particular and for many people, getting out to the sea where you can look at the horizon and be small and have a sense of perspective that you're part of something bigger, I think was really important for everybody's well-being in terms of coping with this notion of being trapped and locked and suppressed and controlled and managed. And I think nature and water in particular um, does what it wants. And there's something really powerful in just watching that. And I think it's a great metaphor for life is watching something powerful do its thing. And, And I think that's what connects people to it is that sense of calm or invigoration or whatever mood that we might be in that we can connect to water in in lots of different ways. I went for a sea swim at the weekend and it was after a sort of a long drive. We don't live near the sea but I just felt the pull to go and, and go for a swim and and uh, and once we were there, it wasn't great weather and it was sort of, you know, it wasn't sunny skies and it wasn't, it didn't look very appealing. The water was brown and choppy and, but eventually we sort of forced ourselves to go in and, and I wasn't feeling that well. And I kind of felt as I was walking in, I felt almost like a sort of panic attack. 
And I, you know, I've swum in wild places many times, Mm -hmm. but I just pushed myself to keep going. And once I was in the water, I just felt like, ah, release, just everything just kind of falling away, you know, the that sort of the the sensations in my body of you know being in pain or whatever and that all went it was just so it just felt exactly. so liberating and yeah. the water just takes it from us doesn't it you know and I think that's a really you know there's two things in in what you've said there first is the the judging so we and I'm really interested in the relationship in this sort of mindful non-judging and water because water you know yeah, it does its thing, doesn't it? And as you said, oh, it wasn't the right colour. It was a bit choppy. The weather wasn't that great, you know. And we have in our minds sort of this mythical tourism ideal of, you know, the turquoise waters and the, the blasting sunshine. I've just put a post on Instagram a minute ago going, come on, July, get your act together. <laughs> as I've just come from a, a beach walk and had my head blown off by gale force winds and I can't get in because the sea is too choppy. And wild is not just choppy, it's like raging out there this morning in Brighton. Um, so yeah, it water allows us to to try to think about not judging it. And you prove that by getting in anyway and having a lovely experience because once we breathe and get into the water and allow it to take our troubles and our worries away um, and our judging away and just get into it. An immersion, you know, Um, and I say that in my book as well, that water brings us into our bodies and into our senses and it can really press pause on everything else that's going on with our day and, you know, your long journey was probably frustrating and irritating and trafficy and parking issues and all of Mm -hmm. that stuff. And you sort of start really judging the whole experience about, you know, everything that you didn't want to happen suddenly coming to you. And then when you get into the water, it's just like, you know, it melts away. It literally dissolves, doesn't it? And it's very, very hard to be in water without a smile on your face or come out of the sea. If you look on any of these sort of social media posts of all the swimming groups, everybody getting out of the water. If you watch exit photos in particular, <laughs> there's ear to ear grins. Um, so it's very playful and joyful. Um, and it, and it's instantly joyful, you know. Um, I think I love all kinds of nature, but I know for me, like hiking up a steep hill or up a mountain doesn't make me smile. It makes me puff and pant, but I get in the sea and I'm just happy. It's you know, or the river or the lake, any kind of water will do me, quite frankly. So, yeah, it is a happy place for many people. And, you know, I found myself sort of roaring in in the, in the waves, my kind of just this kind of primal, Shrieking. yeah, sounds coming out of me that, you know, you wouldn't do, you know, as much as I love nature, I wouldn't go and walk through a forest or woods and, and just kind Start of whooping. shout. And, yeah. <laughs> No, well, that's what I said. And you know what? Water is one environment that allows everybody to be playful. You see little children, you know, tripping out of their socks and shoes and clothes to rush into the sea. Um, and in the same way, adults, I mean, I, I swim with a lovely group of salty seabirds and there's plenty of, of similar kind of outdoor swimming groups around the country. You know, we often say that it's there's not many environments in which you know grown-up ladies 
are allowed to just have a laugh and have fun. And as you said, whooping, shrieking, possibly a little bit of colourful language, particularly in January <laughs> when the sea is quite bitey. Um, or July you know. in the UK, 2021. Yes, aforementioned this morning. Um, you know, and it's it's fun. And, you know, life has been hard and life has been heavy, particularly for the last year and a half. And if you can get respite from that in something instantly without having to make a huge effort at it, you know, and the sea and the water, the the river, the lake, wherever you are, the ponds, they do that for you. You don't have to do it, you know, in a huge sort of constructed way. And I think that's really, really magical. It's hugely, hugely beneficial on all levels for our well-being too. Can you tell me a bit about your chill squad Um I don't know when you set that up and, and sort of how they have experienced um, the last 18 months, whether being part of the chill squad has actually sort of helped them. Can you talk a bit about that? I did a degree in stress management about, oh gosh, 12 years ago, probably now. Um, I've been an academic for a long time and I was writing a lot of research papers about well-being. And after a few years, I just thought... It doesn't feel congruent to me to write academic papers, you know, observing and commenting on, you know, constructions of well-being and clever theoretical models about it, which I can do. But it didn't sit with me. So I decided I wanted to do a degree in something to do with well-being. And there was a stress management degree at the university where I worked. And so I did that so that I could be a practitioner as well as just write about it from an observer point of view. And when I finished, I'm kind of a great believer in feeling properly, for me anyway, my thing is I have to feel properly qualified to do something before I dip my toe in the water. So I did that three-year BSc in stress management and then I did um, a lovely diploma in mindfulness and then I did another one in um, mindfulness for young people. And I adapted all of those things together to create uh, my own program called Chill Squad, which is a well-being, mindfulness and resilience program for young people. And I've probably taught over a thousand students in the education sector um, in England. And I've also run training courses for teachers, social workers, nurses in the UK and Ireland, anybody who works with, with young people to teach them how to teach young people. So we do lots of brain and breathing work. We talk about feelings. We talk about how we manage worried thoughts um, and how we cope with change. And because I have, and, and it's hugely, you know, popular, successful. I have what I call my little chickens, you know, and I miss them terribly during all of this lockdown and you know young people have found this really hard um we older folk at least have the benefit of perspective and years under our belts so we can look back and say okay well this is one year out of my life but if you're you know seven or eight or even 15 and you've had two school years interrupted. My own little boy, bless him, who's nine, almost ten, had a bit of a you know issue the other the other week. He was not an issue. He was just really sad because they started talking about going into the next school year, into year five. And he said to me, "Mummy, you know I don't want to do year five yet. Um, there hasn't been enough time 
in year four. We didn't do year four properly and we didn't do year three properly. So he he felt like he didn't get enough time with the teachers that he loved in each of those two years. And here he was being pushed along on this travelator to the next thing, you know, and back in school with 32 kids in a room, noisy, crazy, having been nurtured at home in a quite a calm environment. And, you know, we're asking a lot of young people to kind of go into very intense and fragmented and inconsistent environments for this last year and a half. And it's really hard for them to make sense of, particularly if, like many homes, there are frazzled parents trying to cope with things as well. Um, so I find that work really important and really powerful. And I haven't been able to go into schools physically except in the last month or two. Um, so I've done some online offerings for kids, you know, a few times a week in schools where I've just talked them through some some breathing, some relaxation, how to manage themselves and so on. And I was in with the school for five weeks recently and the school chose, you know, um, a set of children who they felt really needed it. And, you know, in education, there's all kinds of children with additional needs and there's services there that, you know, help to support those children, rightly so. But my real love is for the quiet, well-behaved suffering child that nobody notices so they're my little chickens in particular because they don't come onto the radar very much because they're not they don't have ostensible special needs with you know statements and you know all that to to, to get specific support and they're not badly behaved so they you know don't get that kind of attention they just sort of sit quietly and worry and put on a brave face and come home and collapse. So chill squad's ready for them, yeah. So when you were a child, were you, did you grow up by water? What were the things that gave you comfort and peace and a sense of well-being? I didn't grow up by water. We were about half an hour from the water. Well, originally, I mean, gosh, let me see, grow up was quite a varied thing. I was born in Canada in the city of Winnipeg which is about as far from water as you could possibly get in the very centre of the continent of North America. <laughs> I think it was about two and a half thousand miles in all directions. So we had Lake Winnipeg, which we would go to in the summer. And there was an outdoor swimming pool, actually, down the road from where we lived. And I remember spending the entire summer in that. I would just go off on my own. I remember even as like an eight-year-old, I would just wander off for the entire day because it was so hot. It was like 38, 40 degrees for two months. I had the same thing when I was six, seven and eight. Oh, really? We lived in Montreal and I have exactly the same memory. Oh, really? All summer, the whole summer being at the outdoor mun municipal pool. Yeah, I don't think my parents even, they just assumed that's where I was. I, I just remember going, being there on my own quite a lot as well. <laughs> wasn't even completely unmanaged you know um yeah so so that was probably an early one and then we would just when we moved back to Ireland we would go for Sunday drives to the sea and I learned to swim in rivers uh, at that age in Ireland when we returned I was about um nine or ten so if we didn't get to go to the sea then we would swim in the local rivers crossing farmers fields and 
when we were about 11, we used to go on our bikes during the summer holidays and cycle about six miles away and swim in a really fast flowing river where somebody would stand on a stone bridge and throw a white, a white sweet, I always remember this, into this, into this river and the rest of us would stand on the rocks in the river and dive for it. And this was a, like a canoe slalom competition river, <laughs> completely unsupervised. And we'd be there the entire day for hours because there was nothing to do in rural Ireland. You know, people, you know, they didn't have summer camps then. I sound like I'm ancient. I'm not that old, but it just wasn't. And, you know, you didn't ask your parents to bring you places, A, because there was nowhere to go and B, they were busy. And you weren't the center of the universe, quite frankly. So you made your own fun. And we used to do that. Yeah, that it would kill us, though, because it was six miles. And once you'd swum all day, it was really hard going cycling home. <laughs> no phones, nothing. But yeah, we yeah, water was, was really important. And we lived in, in rural Wicklow and we had a nature trail at home. My mum had a crafts business with wildflowers and we planted five acres of a nature trail with trees and grasses and I would go up the fields with a book probably sit on the grass be surrounded by cows looking at me <laughs> come down when Wimbledon started maybe watch a bit of that um that kind of thing really simple but very very solitary in a way because in the summer holidays in particular I didn't have any friends who lived near me so I might only see them occasionally in the holidays so that was just the luck of the draw. Um, my sisters had friends their age who lived nearby, but mine didn't. So you kind of made your own fun, really. And I think there's a peacefulness in growing up in nature and being by yourself, because it means you can be like that when you need to be. And that's very much part of who I am, which is why I've found lockdown with everybody on top of me in a small space very hard. <laughs> And so when you grew up and you, you sort of went into academia and you were sort of following that path, weren't you? And, mm. and, and then your mother passed away very suddenly and mm -hmm. you were drawn back to water. Can you talk a bit about what sure. happened there? Sure. Yeah. So I had just started my first lecturing job in London. I did my PhD in England and in geography. And then, yeah, I just... You know, it was a hot summer and I had been talking to my mum the night before. How are things in London? You know, she was in Ireland. Uh, very hot over here. I have a terrible headache. I was like, oh God, you know, have you tried this, this, this? And then we moved on to something else in the conversation. And we were very close, you know, we were great friends. And the next morning I got a phone call to say that she had died of a brain hemorrhage while getting dressed. And I was just completely sideswiped because I had just, you know, I'd just been speaking to her like I am to you now, hours earlier. And there was no hint of it. She wasn't sick. She was 47. She had a headache. So it, it turned out she'd had a brain hemorrhage. And yeah, I just, I came back to Ireland. Um, I quit my job. I managed to get one in Dublin for a little while, which was nearer to where um, the family was. And then this lovely opportunity um, about less than, it, I think it might have been less than a year later, came up in the west of Ireland um, for a job lecturing in heritage studies, which was, you know, a load of stuff that I loved, environment, culture, people, place, archaeology, folklore, literature, 
And I went for the interview and I'd never been to this part of the west of Ireland before. Um, it was County Mayo and just north of Galway for anybody who needs a point of more familiar reference. And I went the night before the interview and I stayed in this beautiful little town called Westport and it had this really majestic, pointy quartzite mountain called Croke Patrick, which is a, a holy mountain, actually, in Irish folklore. And this bay full of islands, and then around the headland of the bay, the wild Atlantic Ocean. And I just felt myself exhale when I went there. You know, I, I feel like doing it now, even just remembering it, because it was so beautiful, and it was... It was wild. I mean, let's be under no illusions that the west of Ireland is not a wet, rainy, <laughs> windy place. Um, but just in that moment, I, as I looked around this place, I thought I, I nearly thought I don't really care what the job is. I have to be here because this is what I need right now to sort my head out, to cope with this total shock. And I'd kind of press pause on it for seven or eight months while... I was doing practical things. My younger sister was still in university. We had a family business to sort out. And, you know, there was a lot of kind of logistics to do. But once that was even keeled a bit more, I just felt myself breathe. And it got the grief out of me through the sea and through nature there. What did that feel like? You describe it as coming out of you. So what was that? What did that look like? What did that feel like? Well, it was just... I think with grief, it's, you know, it's like a wound. If you cut yourself, you know, if you cut your knee, we you wash it out with water, don't you? And you let the air at it to heal. And it's really like that, I think. And I rented a house for a little while by the sea and then I bought one by the sea a few years after that. And there was a beautiful beach um, at Old Head Strand, three miles long sand. And I just walked it every single day, you know, um, I got a little dog, a little rescue dog, and I walked it in the morning, I walked in the evening, and I got into the sea. And as I say in the book as well, being by water, you don't even have to be in it, but being next to it or, or, or in it, it just brings you into your senses and it brings you into your body. And that stops the brain, the mental ticker tape of all the worries and the feelings and the emotions and the ruminating and thinking, why did this happen? What happened? What could we have done? Da, 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 da. All of that. And it just brings you into yourself and it connects you to, you know, um, yourself and the water. And I just felt that, you know, the, the weather, the elements, the water, the wind, it just kind of allowed my body to feel what it needed to feel at that time. And it was kind of with me, you know, there was days when the sea was raging and the wind and the rain were just hammering me. And there was days when I felt like that's what my grief is doing as well. And there were other days, even now in, in, in everyday times, where I needed the water to be calm and still because, you know, those were the feelings that, that were beneficial so yeah it really it just it was company as well I know that sounds weird but I did I lived on my own in this quite remote place and because I'd grown up in a quite remote place as well I didn't find it weird other people said what are you doing off out there on your own and I was like I just like it you know I have a very 
sort of verbal job. I'm teaching all day. I'm around people. And, you know, if you're sort of an introvert who has an extroverted career, <laughs> then you need peace and quiet to rebalance yourself. And so the C for me was company while I was by myself. I didn't feel like alone because the sea was there with me. And you look at it and you see what it's doing today. It's kind of like a friend, you know. It's what mood are you in today? What color are you? What's going on with you? How am I feeling in relation to you? It was very powerful in a very gentle, subtle sort of way too. And what did healing start to feel like? Could you recognize that something was shifting inside yourself? Well, I just felt better every time, every small walk, every small swim, um, every small encounter with being by the sea just helped to heal that a small bit more. And then over the space of, I was there for six years, you know, I felt much better by the end of it. So I just started to be able to find a place for it. And I think nature and, and the sea are great teachers for finding perspective. Um, they teach us about the constancy of things. The tide comes in and it goes out. There's nothing that we can do. You know, all the money in the world, all the power, all the reactions, the raging, anything. It's still going to do its thing and it will be there. Um, and once you stop sort of railing against things and find your breath and get into the rhythm of nature, then you can find your place in the world too, I think. So yeah, it, it teaches us a lot. And seasonality, I, I lived near a lovely little deciduous woodland too. So just watching the seasons change and noticing and, you know, that metaphor of everything having its time and its the season for everything is, you know, I find a lot of solace in that when it comes to grief and making sense of things that really are inexplicable. And you can't necessarily make sense of them at the time. All I knew very intuitively was that I had to be there in that place and that it was helping. And it wasn't until much later when I moved back to the UK and got interested in the, the kind of therapeutic research on the relationship between nature and water and well-being that I could make sense or put a, a kind of a framework to what I had just felt, you know. And then a day did come that you felt that you were ready to sort of come back into the rest of the world. And, and so you moved back to the UK and, and eventually sort of made your way to, to Brighton. And was that the call of the sea too? Oh, definitely. Yes. My poor partner is like, what are we moving here for? Neither of us work here. <laughs> we'll just be commuting all the time. So, yeah, I lived in London for quite a few years um, initially when I came back from the West of Ireland, which was quite a change of pace, I have to say. And, yeah, we had a little boy. And when he was about two, I just said, right, I do not want my child to grow up in the city. Personally, for me, I want to move to the sea and I used to go to Brighton for little mini retreats for 24 hours when I needed a break from everything and everyone I would just go on a lunchtime Saturday to lunchtime Sunday from London check into a hotel bring my swimsuit and a book and I would go and do a drop-in meditation class and get in the water and sleep and have a bath and get in the water again the next morning and then come home and I'd be myself again and I still do that now, 10 years later. 
uh, recommend to all women. So yeah, I, so and Brighton was the place I went to. I didn't know anybody there. It was just where I went. It was easy to get to from London. And then as I started to get to know it, I really loved it because it's quite carefree and liberal and, you know, well-connected and all kinds of things. A very multicultural small city as well. So yeah, so we moved down here and I haven't looked back since really, you know, um, I now have a job at the university in Brighton. It's all sort of come together really after lots of doing, you know, work and living and commuting that doesn't quite fit together. I think if you stick with it, stuff does eventually come together if if you're doing the right thing for you. And yeah, I, I met a great group of women here, the Salty Seabirds, which is an outdoor swim group. And that's been really life-changing because I've always, you know, got in the sea. But meeting these women made me get in it. Made me? No, encouraged me to get in it um, for longer. And one year, about four years ago, instead of sort of hanging up my swimsuit in October, I just sort of kept going accidentally. And then I realized, oh, my God, you get such a hit out of really cold water, such a buzz. And then you get hooked on it and there's no going back, you know, and you meet a, a group of like minded women. And, you know, that fun that we mentioned earlier and, you know, the encouragement too of people that you can just connect with in terms of a common interest in the water. You don't have to get into what do you do or who are your kids and how are they doing and da-di-da, anything. It can be as deep or as light as you want it to be. Um, and it's just a shared connection around, you know, a flask of tea and a shiver and a shake <laughs> in November. So lots of people who, who might feel encouraged to go to the water to help with maybe, you know, some traumatic experience that they've been through or that they suffer with depression or anxiety and, and you know, they learn that the water can can help them with that. And in your book, you, you talk about blue spaces and the way that water can, can help us heal. But some people have a fear of, of water and that can come in many forms. It might be that, you know, they they feel scared about kind of revealing their body on mm-hmm. on the beach and or mm-hmm. how to get into the water how, what do you do where do you do it from and how do you meet with these other people and you yourself had a very terrifying experience in in water and you sort of then found your way back to it so do you want to talk a bit about what that experience was and how you kind of found your courage again yeah i mean i'm really conscious of the fact that you know um Lots of people have anxieties around water. And, you know, even when I get in the sea now, not swimming, but if I was to go surfing now, I have jelly legs for the first 10 minutes easily until I kind of talk myself out of it. So about when I was in my late 20s, just before I turned 30, I took a year off. Um, it was after five years after my mum died and i kind of put my head down, done my job, you know, felt okay. And I thought, right, I'm off. And I went on a 15-month around-the-world trip traveling. And part of that traveling was in Africa. I bought myself a $100 ticket to go whitewater rafting down the Zambezi River in Zambia. On my bucket list, 100%. 
definitely wanted to do this. Looked great, fun. And what I didn't realize is actually one of the most dangerous rivers in the world. Several people a year usually die there. And I got knocked out of the whitewater raft. I was sitting at the back of it um, on a wooden hard board that I later found out they used to um, stretcher people out if they needed if they had spinal injuries. And as the boat flipped in a really unpredictable way, it was, I mean, I, I can't explain this. I thought whitewater rafting was going to be happy, clappy, splashy, oh, ho, ho, very fun. You know, a very kind of nice bouncy sort of inflatable paddling pool in a bit of a river kind of experience. And instead it was, it, it started off being kind of invigorating and then it became terrifying really quickly. Um, it was very high water. Um, it was their winter. And it behaved really like a raging sea, if you can imagine a winter stormy sea held within the barriers of a gorge whilst moving in one direction really fast, but also waves going sideways. So our boat got hit in a three-phase rapid. So a rapid is where it gets really intense and then whirlpooly and comes out of it. But this one had like three, three, three phases to this rapid. And yeah, I just got knocked. <clears throat> I had a life jacket on and the, the board hit the back of my head. I got concussed. And next thing I knew, I was underwater in the dark and I realized I was underneath the raft. And I, of course, naturally what you're going to do is hold on to it. But as I was holding on to it, I, I was putting it down on top of myself even more. Now, I was moving down the river at high speed, huge noise, roaring water in the dark and the water basically coming up over my head as I was pulling down the, the raft on top of myself. So I couldn't breathe. I was taking in huge amounts of water and I couldn't swim out from under it because I had the life jacket on and also because I was concussed. So I wasn't thinking straight. So yeah, I just, the energy pulled out of me very, very quickly. It was like 10 people pulling your legs underwater at the same time um, in the dark and the noise. And I just very calmly thought, there's nothing I can do here, you know, and I'd swallowed so much water. I, I ran out of energy super fast. And I remember consciously letting go in my mind. And then the next thing I knew, I don't recall anything else. Next thing I knew, I was back in the raft and being resuscitated, mouth to mouth, chest pumps and choking water up out of me. So I had eventually gone through the rapid, they told me, and a kayaker that was with the group um, got me up and out and re-floated the, the raft the right way out. And um, yeah, I had to do another eight rapids because I couldn't get out and walk because there was nowhere to walk. The river was only as wide as the gorge. And um, I had to do a half hour hike up the, the gorge vertical cliff then to get out of it, which I ran at top speed, fueled by adrenaline and fear. And then just was like, you know, had a bit of a breakdown when I got up there. Uh, and I was traveling on my own as well. So it wasn't even like I had anybody to kind of of really take care of me I just had to keep going really so it was very traumatic um but you know 
I sort of just chalk it down to being one of those things. It was quite quite specific conditions. Um, I made it out the other side. It didn't kill me. I still love water. And a few years later, I learned how to surf, uh, which is actually all that wavy stuff as well. But I'm quite a careful surfer. I don't go in the huge giant waves. I'm really careful about which ones I catch, the ones that are very likely to not wipe me out. But I get a huge thrill out of it as well. Um, and I love the sea, but I'm also, for every, anyone out there who's, who is nervous and worried about the sea, just do what you feel comfortable with. I don't, I'm surrounded by people who, especially this time of the year, they're all swimming out to the boys far away in the middle of the sea. I have no desire to do that. It doesn't give me anything. I'm not trying to compete against myself. My way of being in the water is for pure enjoyment. And if the water doesn't make me feel calm and feel better, then I'm not going to get into it in a way that, you know, ruins that. I'm not going to worry about being pulled out or being wiped out. I'm going to stay in a depth that suits me. I'm going to swim parallel to the shore. I'm going to go in at low tide. Um, and you can do that as well. You know, find a group online. Facebook is full of outdoor swimming groups and find one that suits you. You know, um, lots of places have these sort of very sporty, competitive swimming groups where, you know, how fast can you go? How long? For what distance? What, you know, how many kilometers did your watch say? And all this kind of stuff. If that's for you, great. And you're in it for the physical fitness and the well-being side of, you know, body fitness, then, you know, go for it. But a lot of people who are nervous of the sea won't be drawn to that kind of group. They will be with people who enjoy dipping and safety and and fun. You know what I mean? So and looking out for each other in the water. Um, and that's what's really nice. And and there's plenty of places. So, for example, the Salty Seaboards run an access to the sea course. And that's sitting on the beach learning about how to get in to the water on a wavy day or a calm day, which way to hold your body in relation to the the waves, timing it so that you get out safely, what tides do, uh, what to wear, what not to wear. And, and, you know, the more you get into outdoor swimming, the less you care about what you look like. There's nobody cares. How do you get beach body ready? Bring your body to the beach. That's <laughs> it you know, and the sea doesn't care, or the water, the lake, the river, it, the water doesn't care what you look like. It accepts you for who you are and you should be getting into it to make yourself feel better, not to make yourself feel worse or to compare yourself to others or to feel inadequate. It's a very personal experience, I think, water. And it can, you know, you can throw all your worries into it and it can take a lot of stress and anxiety out of you. Um, if you allow it to, if you don't kind of filter it with all these kind of conditions and, you know, fears and self-judging or judging it about what you want it to be doing, you know, you can't give nature a checklist and say, right, I want you to be calm, blue, <laughs> low tide uh, at 11 o'clock tomorrow to suit my schedule. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. And there are sort of little practical things, aren't there? So like when I went on Saturday, it was a very stony beach and, and I wasn't feeling very well. So my, my feet were kind of on fire treading mm -hmm. on the, on the yes. stones. And I just, 
Oh, I, shoes. I remember that I, yeah, I have jelly shoes, but I should have brought them. So next time I'll have my jelly shoes. And something I've seen that other people wear are these kind of, because I was having to change into my bikini in the car. and Yes, twisting and turning, yeah. Yeah. And then, so I've seen people wear these kind of big, like, coats that you with hoods that are kind of fleecy inside that you can kind of change inside and then ditch that and then run into the sea yeah dry robes are all the rage and you know they're expensive but you can also just get a hooded towel you know like the ones we used to put babies yeah. in yeah when we were kids that's what we yeah. have those for grown-ups now they're great yeah so a hooded towel they're not expensive and then just put your coat on um you know don't be put off by the gear but yeah shoes if you're on a stony beach, I live on a stony beach too. And people say, oh, it's terrible, stony beach. I'm like, I really love a stony beach because you don't get sand everywhere when you come home. Mm. And I'm in that sea nearly every day. So I prefer not to be sweeping up sand all the time. And then if I'm on holiday, I feel like I'm really on holiday because I've I've got sand um, <laughs> and I'm not ruining my own house. <laughs> so, um, And there's always cake afterwards. I love oh, that. Oh, yes always cake and you know there's great solidarity if you do meet up with a group of women and I'm really a big advocate of of social well-being I've sat on you know panels and talks with um medics who speak about the the physical and the physiological benefits of cold water swimming and uh, psychologists who speak about the mental health um, and psychological aspects of well-being and I only half jokingly say to them well neither of you will get a look in if I don't uh, get to promote the social access element because if people don't get in they don't get the physical or the psychological benefits so they have to feel socially able to get in just because the sea is there doesn't mean that people feel they can get into it so and how do you get into it through human contact, through encouragement, through friendship, through welcoming. And that's what keeps people going. And that's why people go back to it as well, as well as the the buzz that you get from the water itself. It's kind of a very informal but lovely community. And as you say, involving lots of cake and sharing. And, you know, it's I have made some amazing friends and a huge circle of people not a huge circle that's probably wrong I know a lot of people but I've I've made a very sort of core circle of friends that I'd never have met except through the sea and that I wouldn't come across necessarily either in my work or where I live so it's it's really lovely and and it's very life-changing there's an awful lot of people who live on their own who work on their own especially in these times all day so knowing that there's a swim you know at half seven in the morning or at 5.30 when you're finished your day or a Saturday or even a Sunday afternoon, which can be a lonely time for people. And there's a, some somebody to meet and something to do is a very powerful thing to just fend off um, loneliness, depression, all of those things, you know, because it's human. With everything that you've learned and everything that you've experienced with water and, and the people, the community, the sort of mental well-being how would you define courage you know I'm very lucky I think in that I have managed to come to a point in life where all my academic qualifications work 
and then practitioner work has come together in this relationship of water and well-being. So I would define courage as maybe just taking the time to understand who you really are and living a life that fulfills your values and your purpose. Maybe also using your pain to find out what makes you heal and being vulnerable enough to share that with others. Thank you so much, Catherine, for sharing your own healing journey with water and for helping us to understand the science behind its powerful ability to heal. Thank you so much. This has been such a lovely conversation. I've enjoyed talking about water, thinking about water. I'm standing next to water. Um, so I so I feel the sort of he- the healing power of even talking about it. Good. And for those who can't get to the sea, even a cold shower, a hot shower, a, an Epsom salt bath, anything that we're going standing by. Yes, yeah. be grateful for water in our lives in, in all yeah. formats. But it's been really lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank Take you care. Indeed. Thank you. See, see you in the sea one day. Absolutely. Come down. <laughs> <laughs> Take care then. Bye-bye. Thanks. Uh, bye. Thank you so much, Catherine, for showing us that no matter our circumstances or environment, we can all seek out blue spaces to help soothe our minds, bodies and souls. You can find out more about Catherine's work on www.corejourneys.com, buy her book Blue Spaces at your favourite bookstore and follow her on Instagram at bluespaces underscore UK. Thanks to Silk Studios for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And thanks to you all for listening. Take care, choose courage, and see you next week.